Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. So today I'm very happy to have Dr. Matthew Levitt on the line and we are going to be talking about terrorist financing and the Islamic State. And for our listeners that might not know of Dr. Levitt, he is the Frommer Wexler Fellow and the Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policies, Stein Program and Counterterrorism and Intelligence. So he's a perfect guest for this topic and he also testified in front of the House on this topic, so he knows what he's talking about. So thank you for coming on the show, Dr. Levitt. It's a pleasure. Please call me Matt. Okay, Matt. We'll be very informal here. So um, why don't we talk about, to start off with the show, what are the differences in the funding mo- mo- excuse me, what are the differences in the funding models employed by ISIS as opposed to other Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups and other groups within Syria? So you've already hit the nail on the head. Many people assume that because ISIS shares certain common ideological fundamental principles uh, with al-Qaeda, that its uh, funding mechanisms and uh, uh, streams will be very similar. And in fact, that's not the case. ISIS provides us with a very different problem set than does al-Qaeda and even Jabhat al-Nusra. Jabhat al-Nusra, of course, is al-Qaeda's affiliate in Syria, Though many people in Syria see it as much more of a legitimate anti-Assad uh, uh, force because while they are affiliated with al-Qaeda, they are primarily fighting Assad. ISIS, on the one hand, does not raise as much money from deep pocket donors, particularly in the Gulf, like al-Qaeda has over the years. Much of ISIS's uh, financing comes from the same types of sources that financing came for the group in earlier years when it was called the Islamic State in Iraq or Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And I can't stress enough how important it is to appreciate that this is just the latest incarnation of that same old group. And this is a group that raised significant amounts of money through criminal activity domestically within, within Iraq, back then during the, uh, the war in Iraq, and even today. And that presents a very different problem because we no longer have um, uh, forces on the ground, coalition forces, And we don't have in Iraq a government that is either capable or willing to engage in the kind of law enforcement activities that you traditionally would do to deal with things like taxing people on the roads and political corruption and and shakedowns and and robberies and all these different types of things. And they're able to raise significant amounts of money domestically within Iraq. When we see financing mechanisms that cross borders, we've developed over the years since 9-11 great tools to kind of constrict that operating environment. But when they don't, it's much more difficult. And so the Al-Qaeda model of raising money around the world and sending it different places, primarily through abusive charity or major donors, that's not so much the case here. There are major donors raising money for Jabhat al-Nusra and other groups in Syria, but with rare exception, and there have been a few exceptions, that's not the case for ISIS. And are you seeing ISIS doing more localized funding, so using resources within the regions that they are monitoring and um, administering territory, or are you seeing outside funding coming in as well? Is it a combination of the two? Like, what is their major brunt of funding at this moment? The biggest source of their funding remains oil. Um, We've made great strides in constricting their ability to raise as much money through oil, but they're still making a tremendous amount of money. So at the peak they were making, we think, 
three, three point one, three point two million dollars a day through the sale of illicit oil smuggled from Iraq and Syria into Kurdistan, into Iran, uh, but mostly um, uh, through Syria into Turkey. Um, through airstrikes that have targeted the roads, targeted some of their mobile refineries, uh, made it more difficult for them simply to be able to operate in public, targeting some of the rat lines, the smuggling routes. Uh, we believe that we have cut back by about two-thirds of this revenue. But even if they're only raising somewhere between 750000 and a million dollars a day through illicit oil smuggling, that's a tremendous amount of money. There's also other types of um, resource abuse and domestic criminal activity, uh, wheat, uh, water, even um, uh, archaeological artifacts. And again, their ability to control territory means that they can engage in these types of activities. And so one of the things we have been doing with some success is militarily trying to deny them the ability to control territory. It's very counterintuitive. You know, you, you, you would think and you would want, if possible, when you have a law enforcement problem, to deal with it through law enforcement agencies. But we don't have law enforcement agencies on the ground, neither in coalition forces nor in Iraq, who are willing or able, or even present, to be able to do this. We're left, therefore, with the most blunt of tools to deal with the criminal type of problem, and that is airstrikes uh, to um, push back the area that they control. Now, the oil is very interesting in part because some people are very surprised that a group like ISIS would be able to move in and suddenly be so efficient at abuse of oil, but, but no one should be. As I said, uh, ISIS is just the latest incarnation of al-Qaeda in Iraq, and back in the day, during the war in Iraq, we saw al-Qaeda in Iraq team up with former Ba'athists, what we used to call FREs, former regime elements, who escaped Iraq for Syria and relied on smuggling networks, especially those established over many years during the Hussein regime uh, in funding the Iraqi insurgency. These are smuggling networks that served as tools used by the Iraqi regime to evade UN sanctions and the UN oil for food trade limitations over the years. So, for example, according to a 2003 UN Office of Drugs and Crime report, and here I'm quoting, theft of oil and copper and trafficking in these products is currently a major problem. The evolving nature of organized crime in Iraq is based on sophisticated smuggling networks, many established under the previous regime to circumvent UN sanctions, end quote. That's from 2003, so we shouldn't be surprised 11 years later that they're using these same networks. And I found it really interesting while looking over your policy watch, um, which mentioned your remarks to the House in November when you spoke to the House, um, which we will post the policy watch for our listeners with this talk. But as you were mentioning, um, as of September, you estimated a high of about $3 million um, a day coming from oil income, which you said that might be lower. But still, even if it is lower to a million, or I think you quoted, what was it, 700000 a day earlier in the talk? I mean, still, that's a vast amount of money for a group, an insurgent group, a, a terrorist group. And um, there was a part that you said it's actually one of the world's best funded terrorist groups. And what really surprised me is that you were saying the income is bigger than some small countries make per day, which that just makes your mouth drop. So... I mean, looking at this and then looking at, as you said, oil being 
transferred as well as um, you talk about the refineries that ISIS is using to refine the oil and then sell it. I mean, it seems like they're, ignore the pun, but a well-oiled machine. And as you said, they've had time to do this. But for a group, they seem to be employing employees that were already working at the refineries and paying them salaries. So do you think that ISIS can keep up this type of administration in the long run? Or is this just something that will be a short-term glory of oil for them? Well, there are two issues that are really interesting here. Um, the first is that the price of oil is falling around the world. Yeah. This is affecting Iran and it's affecting Russia and Venezuela. It's also affecting ISIS. ISIS is still making money because they on, on the oil because they can sell it. They can afford to sell it at such a discount. But it means they're not making anywhere near as much money on the sale of oil. Even if we do nothing more, they, they're just not going to get uh, as much uh, bang for that buck if we're going to go into punning here, you and I. Um, the, 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 the other factor here is that whereas we maybe counterintuitively don't have as many tools to deal with criminal activity, activity domestically within Iraq, it's the type of thing we should be able to deal with, but since we're not there on the ground, we can't. We do, however, have all kinds of tools to deal with activity that crosses borders, and this activity is very much crossing borders. The oil trucks are crossing borders. Sometimes it's big trucks. Sometimes it's small trucks, tanks attached to the bottom of trucks, tanks to touch, attached to the back of pickup trucks. In some cases, just mules. You can actually go to Hatay province where Syria and Turkey meet. And you can see where and over years they have laid uh, not pipes and not garden hoses, but large hoses across the Orontes River, and they're just pumping, sometimes literally air pumping, um, oil from one side to the other. They can do this because the price of oil per liter in southern Turkey is very high, and so there's a built-in demand for your supply. But because they have to cross borders, we have opportunities. The Turks are now doing a lot more at the border. We are using our intelligence resources to identify who are some of the middlemen, not necessarily terrorists themselves, but middlemen who are helping to move the product, to launder funds, to place oil within to larger um, uh, collections of oil so that it can no longer be tracked by simply testing uh, the one uh, original source and getting it into the international uh, oil economy. Uh, and there's a lot that we can do there. Just today, the U.S. Treasury took an action, not regarding ISIS, but regarding um, individuals and entities in Switzerland, in the Netherlands, in Syria, in the UAE, who are helping the Syrian regime evade sanction and get access to oil and other types of uh, important commodities. So there are vulnerabilities that ISIS faces by virtue of having to interact outside of Iraq with parts of the international, in this case, oil economy. And looking at the front lines of this oil trade, I guess we could call it, as you mentioned, Turkey, of course, is, is very much right on the forefront, as well as Kurdistan. So what could maybe these two countries that really are right there in the thick of things do to help either work with the international community or on their own? I mean, do they have the capabilities on their own to combat this illegal oil trade? 
So the first thing to point out is that every country, including the United States, has some element of political corruption. And so uh, the Kurds are at the front line of this fight against ISIS, and they're taking hits literally every day. And yet there are still some people in Kurdistan who are going to look the other way uh, to make a profit. And so the first thing that needs to be done is in each of these countries, that type of activity needs to be cracked down on. And already in some unlikely places, we've seen some progress reportedly, for example, on the part of the Iranians, making it more difficult for oil to be smuggled across the border into Iran. The Turks are stepping up their game as well. It's taken them a long time, both on this issue and on the issue of the movement of foreign fighters across their borders. But let's be honest, this is an 800 plus mile border. This is very difficult terrain. This is going to be something that's going to take some time. But there are known uh, key points along the border where smuggling has been known to happen. And those are areas where that, that they, and we, together with us and others, they're going to prioritize to try and crack down on some of the known smuggling routes. And even if that doesn't completely uh, crack down on everything, if it just forces our adversaries to develop other smuggling routes that aren't as, as uh, convenient, aren't as efficient, that too is a step in the right direction. Let's also acknowledge there are other things that are bringing in money for groups like, like ISIS, for example, kidnapping for ransom. Uh, we believe that kidnapping for ransom has already yielded for ISIS about, about $20 million uh, this year alone. Uh, and it's a very sensitive issue. If someone gets kidnapped, do you, um, do you negotiate uh, for their release? Do you not negotiate for that, their release? The U.S. and uh, Great Britain do not. Uh, some others do. Uh, the U.S. has been pushing very, very hard for a standard, and including at the United Nations, for a uh, stance of not providing funding uh, to uh, secure the release of uh, hostages and kidnapping for ransom uh, under the belief that this only incentivizes further kidnapping. But you can imagine that for a family or a company uh, whose employee or, or worse, whose family member has been kidnapped, you know, I, I'd like to think that there's nothing they wouldn't do to try and secure his or her release. This is a very difficult moral and ethical problem. And on that topic, which countries do we tend to see paying ransom more than others? And what types of figures are we talking about here? It's mostly European countries that have been paying. And we're, we're seeing in, in the millions of dollars at a time. So um, it is, uh, it's, it's a real issue. Uh, it's a lot of money um, that, that can come from this. Um, and, you know, a few good kidnappings can get you a lot of money. We've seen groups like Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb that uh, raised, you know, enough money to really rehabilitate themselves from nothing and become something that's not only financially self-sufficient, but after a period of time was providing money to groups like Boko Haram because they had raised uh, so much money. And so it really is uh, a significant concern. And, <clears throat> excuse me, um, one of the other things that you mentioned, you, you outlined certain steps when you were talking to the House about ways of combating ISIS financially, so to speak. And you mentioned the financial system and ways of, potentially isolating ISIS in the international financial system, including things like blocking bank accounts um, that are located in areas that are under ISIS control and so forth. How would you go about doing this? And also, I guess what comes to mind when I see that is you think of individuals that might potentially still be in these regions that are controlled by ISIS that 
not necessarily are part of ISIS or want to be part of it, but they do have funds. So how does this affect them and how would the international banking system go about doing this? Is it something localized, whether it's in Iraq or Syria, or is it something internationally administered? What are the processes for this? These are great questions and they're very, very hard. And I believe that we don't want to hurt the average Iraqi citizen uh, in a place like Mosul, who's basically a hostage, him or herself, any more than we have to. And I actually got into an argument with a member of Congress about this when I gave this testimony. This one member who suggested that we should cut off all electricity to Mosul so that we uh, can undermine ISIS's ability to uh, pursue uh, industry and make profit and run businesses. But of course, that would hurt everybody, including people who are on you know, respirators or dialysis. I mean, I think that'd be a very bad idea. But we are concerned, for example, that there are branches of international banks in cities like Mosul and that ISIS might be able to use those branches to move or get money to or from around the world. And so, you know, the international financial industry, the private sector, is mobilized to make sure uh, that those banks uh, can't move, send or receive money uh, across borders. And yet you want them to be able to function so that people who have money in banks uh, and are living in these um, occupied cities can, can still get by. You want to do this in such a way, to the extent possible, that makes it difficult for ISIS to take advantage of the situation on the ground. And that's really hard. For example, there are reports that if you want to take money out of your bank account, ISIS allows you to do it, but you need to make a small donation. And it, it varies. Uh, based on uh, the size of your of your withdrawal, just the same way they have a, a scale for how much money they will quote unquote tax uh, for a car or a small truck or a large truck, you know, moving uh, along the the amount of money uh, that we're talking about that comes from these different types of criminal activities is very significant. You know, somewhere around twenty percent of its revenue from this kidnapping for ransom. A huge amount of, of, of money uh, from the uh, criminal activities to give you a sense of things. You know, according to a November 2006 U.S. government assessment that was cited in the New York Times uh, at the time, uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq back then and other groups had created a self-sustaining insurgency in Iraq, raising 70 to $200 million a year just from illegal activities alone. Now, that wasn't just Al-Qaeda in Iraq what is now ISIS, but it gives you a sense of how much money they can make. But it's not all good news for them, because while it's true that they are definitely the best financed terrorist group we've ever seen, it's also true that they're one of the least well-financed proto-states we've ever seen. And just to give you a barometer for comparison, uh, U.S. officials say that the government of Iraq used to spend on administration costs for the provinces of Iraq that are today under ISIS control about $2 billion a year, with a B, billion, to administer and run these provinces. Uh, that is beyond the wherewithal of ISIS, and that only refers to the provinces it controls in Iraq, not those in Syria. Even if you discount the amount and say, listen, ISIS is never going to provide the level of services that the actual Iraqi government did, let's say they provide 50% of the services, a billion dollars a year just to run things, to pay teachers' salaries and have garbage picked up, etc., that costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think that what they have right now is financially sustainable 
especially when you add into it how important oil revenue is and how that is being cut back both by our activities such as airstrikes and the fall in the price of oil. And I mean, you allude to these criminal activities, and of course, you mentioned a couple like the, of course, sale of oil, the idea of taxation, whether it's drawing funds from your own personal account and then taking a percentage, um, but they have all kinds of other taxations, which I was wondering if you could describe a little bit more for our listeners, because a lot of them are quite interesting. And if you look at them, they would provide a nice extra bit of funds into their pockets. So I was wondering if you could describe some of the other taxations that ISIS is implementing in regions. Uh, stealing livestock, selling foreign fighter passports, taxing minorities, farmers, truckers, running sophisticated extortion rackets, uh, the kidnapping civilian for ransoms that we discussed. So for example, um, ISIS has robbed some banks, but they've taken millions of dollars a month in taxes alone just in Mosul. Uh, most of these taxes, if you can call them taxes, are levied on companies and individuals. So there's one account where an individual who's a computer shop owner in Mosul talks about the ISIS extortionists uh, saying that everyone in the street who's working has to pay them uh, and that therefore he should have to pay too, that they killed three people who refused to pay or relate with their payments. So this guy fled to Erbil after an anonymous caller demanded $114,000 for jihad, which was an unreasonable sum for a ca- in cash for a shop owner who makes only $1,000 a month. In another example, reportedly pharmacists who previously paid ISIS one or $200 a month were being forced to pay as much as $20,000 a month. I don't, again, it's not sustainable. ISIS appears to be trying to see what they can get away with. Um, Beit al-Mal, or their treasury system, the seizing property that belonged to Christians and Shiites, former government officials, and the seized real estates being auctioned off for cash. Um, really, a whole host of different types of activities, uh, levying taxes on goods and all vehicles and trucks, bringing in those goods, including not only oil to population centers like Mosul, but all kinds of other things. So a large truck may typically pay about $400 a small truck, $100, cars, $50 if they're also carrying goods, um, seizing about 40% of Iraq's wheat production, including 16 silos, forcing farmers to pay a tax either in cash or in wheat, uh, which is much higher than what they would sell their product for. So, for example, a kilo of wheat used to sell for 10,000 or 11,000 dinars, but now goes for 4,000 or 5,000 primarily because it was stolen and advertised in the black market. So all kinds of activities. Think about uh, Iraq's 12,000 archaeological sites now under ISIS's control. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of money that can be made for these things. So uh, in one case, there was a particularly beautiful lion sculpture uh, that sold for more more than $50 million in New York in 2007. So if they can find a small number, of these archaeological gems, they can make a pretty hefty sum. Looking at the idea of taxation of the actual people that are there, whether it's, as you said, trucks coming in and out of cities and borders, um, taxation on farmers, taxation on pharmacists and business owners, it almost seems counterproductive if you really look at it in a very basic way, because in my mind, I think that after a while, people would, if possible, flee the area, potentially leave everything that they own and love. But on the other hand, 
it doesn't seem sustainable for a average Iraqi to pay these types of huge fees. Um, so do, do you see anything where ISIS is getting the idea that this might be counterproductive in the future? There are lots of reports of people who want to leave but can't. ISIS taking action against individuals who wanted to leave or tried to leave, sometimes very violent action. Um, the kind of extortion, mafia-style activities apply not only to that, but also to forcing people to go to work. Mm -hmm. The reason they have the expertise to be able to run uh, refineries or, or, or getting oil out of the ground is because they force people to go back to work. Uh, they explain to people that it would be very bad for them or their families if they didn't. And frankly, people, even under these horrible circumstances, need to be able to make money and put food on the table for their families. At one point, they told families of doctors who had fled when they realized that there was a shortage of doctors, tell your family members to come home or it could get very bad for you very quickly. Uh, and so, yes, I think to me, this is part of the reason why over a period of time, this is this is not a sustainable model. We're not on the ground. It's really hard to know how much of a trend this type of activity is or how much of a trend ISIS is. Uh, there is in terms of ISIS developing a better sense of governance. We held an event here at the Washington Institute yesterday with Prince Zaid, who's a Jordanian prince and is the uh, UN human rights uh, representative right now. And he talked about concerns about ISIS actually beginning, unfortunately, to demonstrate ability to govern and get things done. Uh, it's unclear which way the trend lines are going because we're just not there on the ground. And to take this talk to another level of funding, uh, you alluded to at the start of the talk, the idea of donations from, in quotes, deep pocket donors a lot of the time we hear about donations, especially coming from Gulf states. And I know the Treasury has described Kuwait as the epicenter of funding for terrorist groups in Syria. And I'm quoting that. So I was wondering if we could look at this idea of private donations going to ISIS and how countries like Qatar and Kuwait might be filtering this money through to various individuals that get it to the, donate, uh, the destination in Syria, the, the person that is doling out the cash, so to speak. So the key thing to start off here, again, is to stress that all evidence is that right now ISIS is not making a lot of money through charitable donations, not through wealthy donors or abusive charity or states. That is a real contrast to some of the groups in Syria like uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, Ahral Sham, and others, which are. That said, there are a couple of key exceptions that I'll tell you about. And our concern is that these are not these not, these groups don't behave in static ways. They're learning organisms, and as we get successful in cracking down on what is today some of their um, lucrative uh, fundraising mechanisms, for example, oil kidnapping for ransom. Uh, they will branch out into other types of activities. And the one that is easiest, closest by, um, very familiar to them, the one that will almost certainly happen among others is uh, reaching out for uh, donations. It's kind of like squeezing a balloon without popping it. If you just squeeze it, uh, but don't do it squeeze it enough to pop it, the balloon will just expand in another direction. Here, 
Turk, uh, Kuwait and Qatar have been especially disconcerting. Both countries have finally passed uh, counter-terror finance laws, but implementation has been sketchy uh, if you want to be generous. Uh, Qatar is a particular concern right now. Some governments, uh, German minister and at one point even Secretary Kerry seemed to imply that the government of Qatar was providing money to elements in Syria. But even if that's not the case, we're only now beginning to get greater traction with Qatar and Kuwait in particular regarding the oversight of donations that are going into Syria, where they believe that the rebels fighting Assad are legitimate, whether they are secular, moderate, extremist, radical Islamist, what have you. In the case of ISIS, we're not seeing that yet. But I'll give you two examples to show that there have been some instances, and therefore there could be more. So, for example, in mid-2014, uh, one individual, uh, Al-Harzi, was an ISIS official operating in Syria. And as a high-profile ISIS member, he was working to raise funds and recruit and facilitate the travel of fighters for these terrorist organizations, for, for ISIS. He was also known as one of the first terrorists to join ISIS, and he worked to help raise funds from Gulf-based donors for ISIS. So, for example, according to the Treasury Department, in September 2013, he arranged for the group to receive approximately $2 million from a Qatar-based ISIS financial facilitator who required that they specifically use the funds for military operations only, meaning not orphans and widows, um, not running a government, but fighting. Uh, the Qatar-based ISIS financial facilitator then also enlisted uh, Al-Harzi's assistance with other fundraising efforts in Qatar. That's one example. The only other demonstrated example we know for a fact so far uh, involves a guy named Al-Anizi. Uh, according to the Treasury Department, since at least 2008, Anizi worked with a senior ISIS facilitator an ISIS financial uh, official to transfer funds from Kuwait to Syria. He also worked with an ISIS facilitator to pay for the travel of foreign fighters moving from Syria to Iraq. Uh, as I think you mentioned at the opening of the program, one of my previous stints in government, I served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Intelligence at the Treasury Department. And what that former shop of mine does is puts out requests for information and develops intelligence and then analyzes intelligence specifically relating to illicit finance. And among the things they're looking at now are the financial trends for financing terrorist groups in Syria, but also the extent to which this type of an issue, uh, charitable abuse and major donors financing ISIS might become a greater trend. And in the report, you mentioned these laws that Qatar is creating and putting into being but you allude to that they announce them with a lot of fanfare but as you also mentioned earlier in the talk they don't really implement them that well so i mean how can you work with a country that maybe does all what you need to do in the media and in the spotlight but when it comes to the actual actions that will prevent these funds from getting to their final destination. I mean, how do you work with that? It almost seems counterproductive and a lost cause. Well, it's certainly counterproductive, but it's not a lost cause. I mean, one of the things Treasury does best, uh, you know, outside the headlines of the newspapers is this kind of, you know, person to person, government to government, 
U.S. government to private sector engagement. At the end of the day, even if elements, uh, individuals within Qatar believe that Islamist extremists are the way to go and they're the way to uh, you know, promote uh, Sunni communities and their standing in Syria and Iraq, the government of Qatar understands that this is their backyard. This is something very dangerous that could be growing uh, in their backyard. And before it comes and boomerangs in the West, it's going to come back and hit them hard, as it did to some Gulf countries in 2003 and four, Saudi in particular, in the context of Al-Qaeda and their inability in those early years after 9-11 or Maybe not inability, but it uh, wasn't so much a, a lack of ability, but a lack of willingness to crack down on the financing of Al-Qaeda. And then they got hit at home with terrorist attacks, and suddenly they uh, they learned how to crack down on the financing of those groups. Qatar is beginning to understand the same, and we're beginning to see, beginning to see a, a difference. It's not enough just to pass a law. You actually have to enforce it. So, look, the bottom line is that it, in, in its latest annual terrorism uh, report on terrorism, the State Department fairly politely described Qatar's oversight of local donations to foreign organizations as, quote, inconsistent, and then more bluntly characterized implementation of the country's anti-money laundering and counter-terror finance law as lacking and mar- marred by significant uh, gaps. But uh, as one U.S. official put it, the Qatari attitude is often that a law has been passed and therefore the problem has been solved. Uh, but that's not the case, and so it should not surprise that last December the Treasury Department added a Qatari academic and businessman, Abdurrahman al-Nuaymi, uh, to its terrorist list and described how he ordered the transfer of nearly $600,000 to al-Qaeda via al-Qaeda's representative in Syria and intended to transfer nearly $50,000 more. That's al-Qaeda, not necessarily ISIS, but you can see the kind of trends here. And uh, now that this has been exposed, uh, not just by the things that I've uh, written and put out publicly, but that the government's done, uh, a lot of uh, reports now, I think Qatar's under a lot of international pressure to step up its game, Qatar and Kuwait both. So we have sanctions as well that are being implemented. And I'd really like to look at that a little bit, as well as the other law enforcement methods that are being used to inhibit financing of terrorists in Syria. It doesn't have to only be ISIS, as you mentioned. There's al-Qaeda, al-Nusra. So I was wondering, what are these different methods that are proving to be useful? Well, one of the things that's useful is getting international buy-in. So, for example, beyond just kind of a unilateral or bilateral relationship between the U.S. and these different countries, the passing of U.N. Security Council Resolution 2178 was important in that it, it ensures the international community's commitment to preventing and rolling back the flow of foreign fighters and funds to ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra. And so this is no longer just something that's being asked, you know, kind of do a favor to the United States. It's not just something where we say, don't do us a favor, do yourselves a favor. This is activity that's happening in your own backyard. This is a UN Security Council uh, obligation and failure to follow through at a time when uh, ISIS is creating a phenomenon of massive foreign fighter flows from Europe and the West in general, Australia, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States, some 84 countries around the world. There's tremendous focus on this issue right now, and anybody who doesn't do what they can, where they can, is going to be in the spotlight. We have five main lines of operation 
to target ISIS and tremendous international coalition and buy-in to do it. And one of those five is stemming the flow of funds. Another is dealing with foreign fighters, encountering violent extremism, etc. So failure to do what you can and getting called out on it, they just can't afford that right now. And this kind of international umbrella under UN Security Council resolution is is very uh, very useful. And one thing I was wondering, so with ISIS in particular, and um, potentially al-Nusra, as you were mentioning, especially with ISIS, you're seeing more localized funding using what's locally there, resources, oil, etc. And do you think this might be an evolution of the organization in the sense that by going outside of borders, outside of countries, international funding, and instead of doing that, localizing it, do you think it's a way of avoiding or mitigating sanctions on the group itself or on individuals? Well, it's definitely the case that they understand that those activities that they engage in within the borders of Iraq are largely beyond our remit. And it's why you have this strange, uh, you know, reality where contrary to conventional wisdom and contrary to what we prefer to do, the only, not just the best, but really the only tool we have at our disposal to constrict the operating environment for their criminal activities within Iraq are uh, use of military tools. And so, again, to the extent that um, as part of an air campaign, we can prioritize pushing ISIS back from areas it controls to deny the group the ability to profit from extortion and taxation and looting artifacts and natural resources and other criminal activities within those areas, uh, that will be effective. Uh, but in, in the long run, the bottom line is uh, the only way in the long run to deal with these activities within Iraq is for there to be change within Iraq. And while it sounds right now like pie in the sky, pressing the Iraqi government to put in place real political reforms and create a credible and trusted law enforcement body able to move into liberated areas and other areas under government control to investigate and prosecute criminal enterprises, financing ISIS or other illicit activities is critical. And until we get there, we're not going to fully solve our problems. We're nowhere near there. And just to give an example of how far we are, um, the, uh, the Ministry of Interior, which theoretically would be the element uh, overseeing all of this, is run by the Badr organization, uh, the uh, uh, Shia sectarian militia, uh, which is a very nasty group and cut their teeth killing coalition forces in Iraq, uh, very close to Iran. Uh, originally, they wanted to have the head of the Badr organization be the Minister of Interior. We pressed them not to do that. And so now a lower-ranking Badr official is the Minister of Interior, and it's quite clear that that person is not going to take a sip of water or walk two feet to his left or his right without getting permission from his boss, the head of the Badr organization. And this sectarianism is really pernicious, uh, undermines uh, governance and political reforms within Iraq, but also, of course, drives the uh, sectarian radicalization within the conflict and, and makes things that much worse. And I mean, to get this real political reform within the Iraqi government and, as you put it, credible and trusted law enforcement body set up, I mean, right now it, it seems with the internal strife, as you've just mentioned, and the situation that the country is in, it seems like that is going to take years to get to that point. So, I mean, relying on that in the near future seems almost... Um, you know, a wish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean... Look, so we don't rely on anything. That's the bottom line. 
but I do, I, I think it's important to stress because some people think diplomacy is a four letter word and that's, that's foolish. If it's all you're doing, if any one of the tools we're discussing is the only thing you're doing, then well, you're going to be in a world of pain, right? If you've got an overflowing sink in your house and the plumber comes in with any one tool, but just one tool, you better worry. We need to be employing, uh, to use the popular catchphrase, all elements of national power. We need to be doing lots of things at once. So while we are doing tactical things, hitting refineries, uh, airstrikes, using our intelligence to identify the criminal middlemen that are moving money and moving oil, pressing for an end to paying kidnapping for ransom, all these different things on focusing on Qatar and Kuwait, major donors, we also really, really do need to do things, uh, not necessarily just asking nicely, but coaxing and pressing and pushing and cajoling for the kind of political reforms that have to happen in Iraq at the same time that we do what has to be done to uh, undermine ISIS. I think one of the things we need to be doing more here is working more closely with the Kurds, even though this could exacerbate tensions between uh, the Kurds and the central government. They did just agree on a oil sharing revenue deal that was long overdue. And hopefully by building up the Iraqi uh, military brigades, I think there are six brigades that actually still are standing and empowering the Kurds. The Kurds have said, if we get the heavy weapons we need, we will take the fight to Mosul. I don't think there's anybody else that can say that. Uh, and we can't expect that the kind of political reform we need to eventually ultimately happen in Iraq is going to be able to happen in the context of ISIS still controlling massive territory. So long as that's the case, and the government is mostly fixated on protecting the South and protecting the capital region, the Shia militias are going to remain the most effective fighting force to do that. And that means that political reform is going to be difficult. Well, I think that's a fantastic way to end the show. I will give you the opportunity. Yeah, one. it is. It's, it's depressing, but you, you encapsulated it very well. I will give you the opportunity if there's anything else you'd like to say, because we like to do that for our guests. So I'll sort of open the table to you. Well, I, I would just say this and, you know, uh, I'll put my cards on the table. I'm a former treasury official, but I really do think that this is the type of situation where if we just, you know, kind of release the treasury hordes, this is the type of thing they do best. Thinking outside the box, coming up with creative solutions to problems. You know, there's there's no silver bullet here to disrupt ISIS financing. Um, but this is the type of thing that treasury does really well. They did this after 9-11 in an even more uh, substantial way, coming up with creative ways to deal with Iran's illicit financial conduct in 2005-2006, developing tools and strategies uh, to deal with Iran and its uh, support for terrorism, nuclear proliferation, and illicit financial shenanigans. It did so once more when Treasury, together with Central Command, created the Iraq Threat Finance Cell, the ITFC, on the ground in Iraq to analyze financial pocket litter and intelligence collected in counterinsurgency raids, and then used that information as targeting data to feed the next round of night raids that really took the fight to what was then AQI in a very serious way. So, you know, this is not going to happen overnight, but I do think we should expect to see Treasury leveraging intelligence to target the middlemen, the traders, the transport companies, anyone who helps produce, refine, transport, or sell ISIS oil. And at the same time, we should expect continued vigilance targeting major donors in the Gulf. 
not only because they remain a major source of revenue for other groups like Jabhat al-Nusra, but because continued success targeting oil and other revenue, like as we discussed, will almost certainly force ISIS money men to turn to deep-pocketed donors to make up the difference. So there's a lot of work to be done, but there's a tremendous focus on these wor- on this work. The fact that it's become one of the five pillars of the anti-ISIS campaign gives it additional uh, momentum. And uh, this is going to be something that will be interesting to watch for, for quite some time. Very much so. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show and providing your expertise on this topic. It's been very fascinating, and I'm sure our listeners will greatly enjoy this show. And just thank you for spending your afternoon with us. It's a pleasure. I am one of your listeners. Uh, long live the Lootcast. Thanks for, thanks for inviting You're me on. You're welcome, and thank you for coming on. Anytime.